It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tonight on The Readout. We got up to the third floor. Uh, my room faces, has a window facing the union, so we got to a different room. Uh, I was in there with five other guys, and we pushed a bed in front of the door, and we turned the lights off, and turned a police scanner on down low and waited out for the night. You're a sophomore in college. Yeah. And you had to do that on your campus. Yeah. Another deadly school shooting, this time in Michigan, as we mark five years since a gunman took the lives of 14 high school students and three staff members in Parkland, Florida. Plus, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley steps into the ring to challenge Trump as Mike Pence says he plans to fight the special counsel's subpoena. And Twitter. Twitter whistleblower Anika Navaroli joins me to tell us what she learned at House Republicans hearing on alleged liberal bias on social media. We begin tonight on this February 14th, Valentine's Day, to those lovebirds celebrating. It's also Frederick Douglass's birthday. And sadly, it is also five years to the day since the Marjorie Taylor Stoneman Douglas High School mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. Today also marks the 46th day of the year, and already this country has faced 68 mass shootings, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Those are shootings where at least four people, not including the shooter, were shot. Just take a moment to take that in. 67 mass shootings in just 46 days. Nowhere else in the world is this happening. The latest mass shooting coming on the campus of Michigan State University last night, where students scrambled for safety as a 43-year-old gunman who had no affiliation with the school opened fire, killing three students and critically wounding five more. Those three students have now been identified. They are Alexandria Werner, a junior at MSN, MS, MSU, remembered as a tremendous student, athlete, and leader. Brian Fraser, a sophomore at MSU and president of his college fraternity. And Arielle Anderson, also a sophomore at MSU, who wanted to become a pediatrician. For a few of those students on campus, it was their second mass shooting in less than a year and a half with some having survived the mass shooting at Michigan's Oxford High School, where a 15-year-old murdered four students and injured seven more. And as I said, this comes five years after the Parkland school shooting. Five years since the lives of 17 students and faculty members were senselessly robbed from their loved ones. And back then, five years ago, just like with the Sandy Hook massacre six years before that, there was hope that this country would finally face our decades-long pandemic of gun violence, especially when it comes to America's schools. But in fact, it has only gotten worse. Following the Parkland school shooting in 2018, the Washington Post determined that up to that point, 187,000 of our children had ex been exposed to gun violence at school. Now, five years later, that number has exploded, nearly doubling to more than 338,000. And that comes, as the Post points out, despite a pandemic that closed campuses for nearly a year. And instead of making it harder for people to get their hands on a gun, red states across the U.S. are making it even easier. And don't forget, 
it was just one week ago that Republican members of Congress were sitting in the House chamber for President Biden's State of the Union address, sporting AR-15 pins on their lapels. Joining me now is Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Her two sons attend Michigan State University. I want to start by asking you, um, General Nessel, how your kids are doing, um, how their friends are doing, um, and how your state <laughs> and everyone you know is doing. Well, no one's in a very good place right now. I will say that for sure, you know, and I'll tell you what, my um, my sons just came home from college and they just got in the door a few minutes ago where one of them showed me video footage uh, of the shooter actually walking right behind his house right after the shootings had taken place. The other one had just left one of the locations where the shootings began. So, you know, talk about it touching close to home for all of us. On one hand, you know, I'm in contact with my special agents that are on the ground assisting the Michigan State University Police Department uh, during the course of this event. And on the other hand, um, I'm having to go back and forth with my kids who are sheltering in place uh, and trying to communicate to them where we believe the shooter is so that they can best protect themselves. So, you know, I, I'm an attorney general for sure, but I'm a mom first. And moms like myself are experiencing this all over the state of Michigan and all over the United States. And for what? So so we can have some of those Republicans uh, in Congress wear um, on their lapel a pin of, of a deadly weapon. It's it's repugnant. And I just think that everybody in this country should stand up and say that we're not going to take this anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, you have as attorney general incredible power, um, law enforcement power. And yet here you are, like myself, who has a great big platform on uh, cable television. And both of us as moms and our kids are your kids are a little younger than mine, it sounds like, are utterly powerless. And, and you as somebody with all of that power, you know, essentially we are as mothers and all the fathers and siblings and everyone out there are completely at the mercy of the gun lobby. We're at the mercy of gun manufacturers who have the freedom to put guns in the hands even of little kids. In Virginia, it was a little like six or seven-year-old. And so I wonder just, just how you process that as somebody who has law enforcement power but can do nothing to make them stand down and stop putting more guns into the hands of whoever wants one, whatever their background. You know, I think that I'm a, a very aggressive prosecutor when it comes to uh, assault of crimes. But you know what? I can't enforce laws that don't exist. And that's why one of the things that the students at Michigan State University did, um, besides, of course, having to, you know, go through this incredibly horrific set of circumstances last night, uh, is that they did something else last November. They voted. They came yeah. out in incredibly large numbers. And you know what they did? They told our government that they didn't want to have to take this anymore. And so they voted for a governor who ran on a platform uh, of, of protecting them and passing gun violence protection laws. And for the first time in 40 years, we flipped the state legislature for Democrat, Democratic majorities in both the House and in the Senate who pledged to do the same thing. So you know what? We are doing something in our state. And right now, I can tell you, that uh, our state senators and our state representatives are working on bills as we speak. And I I think that we're going to see them passed expeditiously through uh, our state legislature and then signed by the governor. 
The question will be, will it be enough to protect people in our state? Because this is a national problem yeah. that requires national solutions. Uh, and you don't get checked at the border of Ohio, you That's know, when right. you're driving into the state of Michigan. That's right. And I, I just want to point out to our audience that while uh, Attorney General Nessel is talking about the laws that are being passed in Michigan, um, in in other states, um, in 14 states, Republicans are going after things like drag shows, pushing anti-transgender bills, you know, adding abortion bills. So they can legislate. It's, and I think this is really important to understand that they can legislate when they want to. So the things that they think are dangerous, they think they, they do legislate on them. Um, and meanwhile, in the state of Missouri, you have a representative named Pettit Meredith calling um, out the priorities of Missouri Republicans. And this is the quote, kids carrying guns on the street or in a park is a matter of individual freedom and personal responsibility. Kids seeing a drag queen read a children's book or sing a song is a danger the government must ban and asking if I have that right. Apparently, um, Attorney General Nessel, that is the priority of Republicans right now. Drag shows um, to protect kids, not protecting kids from getting slaughtered in school or in college. Yeah, I mean, it, it's done to distract us from the real issues because they don't want to face the gun lobby. They don't want to face the NRA. They don't want to face gun manufacturers. Uh, and they don't want to face people that they have convinced somehow um, that it's more important to have the right to own and to use a deadly weapon than it is to survive yeah. when you go to college. Yeah, it's sick. Uh, and this is the only country where that happens. There is no other country that is putting up with this for decades. Michigan Attorney General uh, Dana Nessel, thank you. Um, now, as you mentioned, today marks five years since the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Well, tonight, the community held a vigil for their 17 lost loved ones. Yesterday, we spoke with Fred Guttenberg, who has never done an interview before on this day of remembrance about his daughter, Jamie, the fight to protect students in schools and the push by Republicans in Florida to make it easier, easier to obtain guns. Joining me now is Fred Guttenberg. His 14-year-old daughter, Jamie, was murdered in the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. He's also the author of the upcoming book, American Carnage, Shattering the Myths that fuel gun violence. Um, Fred, it's always an honor to speak with you. I see the beautiful picture of Jamie behind you, the image of her behind you. And, and, and I know you've done interviews talking about that, you know, the time that passes um, as these anniversaries come and her birthdays come and all of these milestones happen, it, it gets harder. It doesn't get easier. This year, and really actually quite recently in particular, my wife and I have come to the realization we can't find new photos. We've looked at all the videos. There are no memories that we haven't thought of. Um, you know, and in fact, tomorrow morning, I, I've been working on writing something to talk about how I'm feeling with regard to that. Because it's a really strange place to be. In. The memories have stopped. Um, so we're make, working on making new memories in Jamie's memory and her honor. But it's hard to comprehend the idea that your 14-year-old daughter, your forever 14-year-old daughter, who should be living the best moments of her life, it's just stopped. 
Yeah, it, it, it is a strange thing, because as you said, she is sort of frozen at 14 and in that memory. But it's, it's a weird way in which you're like still having them in your life. And I feel that way about my mom. She's been passed a long time. But it's like you're still thinking, well, what would she be thinking right now? What would she be doing? How would she be handling this or that? Because in a way, you, you in a way, in your mind, you're still parenting this this child. And so as you look at the children her age who are in Florida, in a state that is pushing to repeal the good things that they did after Parkland. I mean, Parkland actually was miraculous in its outcome in that, you know, a state that has yes. Marion Hammer as the real governor, they actually passed like a pretty good law to raise the age to 21 yes. for um, assault rifles. But now they're pushing to have permitless carry. They're pushing to make it easier. The state of Missouri is doing something similar um, and trying to make it legal for children to open carry, you know, and saying it's, it's illegal to stop them from carrying. When you see that happen, how do you, as Jamie's dad, think about that? You know, Joy, when this interview is shown tomorrow, um, it's going to be five years, five years. And I have never, ever done or allowed an interview to be shown on a, a day that we are going to remember what happened in Parkland. I've always kept it as a private day. Um, one of the reasons why I'm wanting this to happen tomorrow night is because those legislators in Florida who are about to embark on making Florida a more dangerous state, who are about to ensure that they are making decisions that will lead to more dead children, more families like mine, they need to receive this message before they hold another hearing, which, by the way, is going to happen within a day or two after tomorrow. It is without, um, I, I can't express deeply enough the insanity behind not just the permitless carry, but here's how crazy they are. School grounds. You will still need a permit to carry a weapon on a school ground. But if you're caught without a permit, the penalty is being reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor. In other words, kids, who want to kill, go test the grounds, figure out what you want to do. If you get caught, you'll get a slap on the wrist and come on back. It is insane what they're doing. There's no safety component involved. And, and unfortunately, it's all about red meat for the base. They don't give a you-know-what about safety of the voters and citizens who live here. You know, I think about, you know, and, and it's not just Florida, it's it's Texas, it's Missouri, it's a lot of these red states. I mean, their solution is give kids clear backpacks, right? Uh, give kids armored backpacks, give teachers DNA guns. DNA test kids to parents. Yeah. And or right. And saying, well, here's your DNA test. I mean, it, it all seems to be centered around their submission to the idea that more kids are going to get killed. And here are some tools to help you get away when the shooting starts. Yep. You know, as somebody who had kids in Florida schools, that would terrify me because you still you have a son that has got to go to school. And the idea that these legislators don't seem to want to stop the shootings. They just want to make it so that maybe more kids can get away or one or two of the shooters get caught. It just they don't seem to have decided they're empowered to stop it. We are raising a generation of kids who expect that they may be 
the next victim of gun violence. That's yep. what we are doing by our failure to solve the problem. And I'm glad you mentioned the varieties of states because it really gets to the fact that there are certain states that are responsible for pushing gun violence out across the country. It is the true border crisis in America that you have these permissive red states, guns for all, without any kind of sensible mechanisms to prevent those who intend harm, that don't only stay in the state where they're sold, they flow to other states. And so it is the true border crisis, and we need to solve this on a national level. I am so thankful for President Biden, who has taken step after step after step to do what he can. But, you know, we're also in a race against some of these lunatic governors who are okay with your kids dying because they are. Yeah. And then who want to be elevated to the presidency so that they can do this at a national level and inflict the kind of pain that your family, unfortunately, is going to be facing as, uh, as this airs on everyone. Um, I, I salute you, Fred Guttenberg. You are so heroic uh, and you do so much to try to prevent other families from being uh, in this fraternity that you never, ever wanted to join. Thank you, sir. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Nikki Haley has apparently changed her mind about saying she would never, ever challenge Trump for the Republican presidential nomination because now she's challenging Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. Well, that was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who spent two years in Donald Trump's cabinet, announcing her 2024 presidential run. As the first Republican to formally challenge Trump for the Republican nomination, the former ambassador to the U.N. positioned herself as the face of a new generation. Her launch video highlighted her background, growing up as the daughter of Indian immigrants in South Carolina, then threw in some menacing images about the 1619 Project and anti-racism, and touted her role as governor in 2015 when nine black parishioners were murdered at Charleston's Mother Emanuel AME Church by white supremacist Dylan Roof. The video doesn't mention the law she signed removing the Confederate flag in front of the South Carolina State House, something she used to take a lot of credit for even though she mostly caved to activists and corporate pressure after years of resistance. In 2019, she spun it this way. Here is this guy that comes out with his manifesto holding the Confederate flag and had just hijacked 
everything that people thought of. We don't have hateful people in South Carolina. There's always the small minority that's always going to be there. But, you know, people saw it as service and sacrifice and heritage. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. When people took issue with her completely inaccurate, bizarro characterization of the Confederate flag, Haley argued her position was always consistent, but said, quote, today's outrage culture does not allow any gestures to the other side. It is far from the only time Haley has been, let's just say, inconsistent. She said last April that she wouldn't run in 2024 if Trump ran. Then she'd consider it, and now she's running. All very much in line with Nikki Haley's longstanding habit of being all things to all people, especially when it comes to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is everything we hear and teach our kids not to do in kindergarten. And we have seen just behavior over and over again that's unacceptable. Did you ever have any doubt about the fitness of this president? I never did. I never had any concern on whether he could handle the job ever. What about his truthfulness? Did you think he was a truthful person? Yes. In every instance that I dealt with him, he was truthful, he listened, and he was great to work with. I will not stop until we fight a man that chooses not to disavow the KKK. That is not a part of our party. That's not who we want as president. We should not want to go back to the Republican Party before Trump. I am joined now by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and chief strategist for Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign, and Lauren Leader, co-founder and CEO of All In Together. Lauren, ladies first, uh, on this Valentine's Day, I'm going to go to you first. Um, you wrote, you've written a piece in Political that talks about the woman problem. I think that any female candidate would have, and, and I want to talk about that. But I feel like the other issue that Nikki Haley's going to have my head is spinning. She has had every possible position on Donald Trump, yet she's saying she's something new. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely what everyone is raising today, and it's going to be a big question. I don't think there's any question that the lane that she's trying to run in is the not-Trump lane, the alternative to Trump. I sort of think of it as like the sort of Jeb Bush 2024 version of the campaign. There's clearly a group of folks in the Republican Party who've been dissatisfied. The question is, are there enough of them? And in a Republican primary, you know, how does she carve out her lane and stay true to who she is, but also reconcile the many inconsistencies, to say the least, that she's had in the past? And then, as I say in the piece, I mean, I think the biggest problem that she's going to have that every woman has when they run at this level is going to be her race and gender, which is just inseparable from the sort of current climate of Republican primary politics. It's just gotten whiter and more uh, sort of white supremacist, frankly, in a lot of circles. And I am waiting to see how she's going to square that. They're going to come after her with every conceivable smear. Yeah. Well, I mean, Stuart, she's tried to inoculate herself by that by saying, no, 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 I'm not one of the bad ones. I hate uh, the 1619 Project just as much as you do. And, you know, she's had this sort of—she talks about her Indian-American heritage, but she focuses not on her Sikh background, but on her conversion to Christianity. Like, she's definitely tried to fit in. But I, I just want to put up the 2016 cast of characters that ran against Trump. They all said Trump was no good. Trump was uh, an anathema to uh, conservatism. Trump wasn't a real conservative. Trump wasn't a real Republican. Trump was disgusting. Trump was misogynistic. And then they all took the knee. So did Nikki Haley, Stewart. In the end, everything she tries to say about being an alternative to Trump, no, she's not. She's Trump's person. Yeah, you know— The Nikki Haley who existed in that brief moment of truth uh, could be somebody who emerges now and says, well, actually, you know, it was worse than I thought. I didn't think that Donald Trump would try to overthrow the government of the United States. Um, So here, I'm an alternative. 
Now, I think where the party is today, that would not be a successful path to be a nominee. I don't think that there's any reason to believe that a nominee of the party can be elected who will assert that Joe Biden won a free and fair election. So, I mean, you're just going to wrap your mind around that. They they won't assert that they're running in a democracy. So um, I think Nikki Haley has the worst of both worlds. She's not who she was, and she's never going to satisfy the MAGA crowd because she really doesn't believe this stuff. She is who she was, I think. I think she really is offended by Donald Trump uh, and appalled by him. But she's she's lost that opportunity. You know, and Lauren, I mean, the fact that she couldn't even put into her ad the thing that she's most well known for, even though I was down there covering that, she wasn't responsible for bringing down the Confederate flag. But she also doesn't seem to be particularly proud of it coming down. She didn't include that in her narrative. She wants the credit for the Charleston, South Carolina massacre piece. But she has to walk in the line of you're in the DeSantis party, where they detest black history, where they push away the history of anyone who isn't white. So she's got to run as a defender of the Confederate flag, as a defender of the Confederacy, which is what she was before as well. Well, I, I don't know if she's going to go that far, but I think she's certainly trying to weigh into the culture wars. I mean, bringing yeah. up a picture of AOC in her campaign launch ad is and Bernie. I mean, it's a pretty, you know, it's like super optimistic on one hand, this like very positive vision of America, but then it goes dark and it puts up, you know, someone like AOC and the 1619 Project in the ad because she clearly understands that part of what's ginning, what gins up Republican energy right now are some of these culture wars. She, she's issues. also a woman running who didn't mention Roe, who didn't mention the loss of well, That's going to be another complicated issue for her because she has been, you know, staunchly, staunchly pro-life with no exceptions. And yet, you know, Congresswoman in her own state, Nancy Mace, has said that Republicans are going too far. Last week, Joy, 60, there was a new poll from Gallup, highest number of Americans since they've been doing this poll say that they are dissatisfied with abortion legislation, 69%. So, it's a very difficult lane because yeah. for people who've been pro-life all this time, are they, is she going to push that they go further on pro-life legislation? Right. That is a loser today. And the question, I guess, Stuart, is, the you know, Donald Trump wished her well, which of course makes sense. He wants more people to run. The more people, that's how he won the first time. He wants 10 of them to run, right? I mean, Tim Scott mm-hmm. is talking about running. He has no shot either. Hello, Tim Scott. They're not going to make you their president. You, you could go on and on and on. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to want to be vice president. They're all sort of throwing Carrie Lake. All of the, you know, Freak Patrol is, is potentially going to run. But isn't that what Donald Trump needs, as many of them to run as possible? I think Donald Trump uh, benefits from a crowded field. Absolutely. He has the um, most intense support and people who I think uh, if he gets indicted, his support will go up yep. to prove that intensity. Um But, you know, at the heart here is that there really is not a desire for the Republican Party to be a different party than the direction that Trump took it. All the uh, objections to Trump really are kind of aesthetic objections. They think he, you know, he's sort of embarrassing. Uh, He says these things, you know, like, I'd rather not have a president of the United States who talks about having sex with his daughter in public. But where he took the party um, is they're fine with that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Ron DeSantis, Um, I think it's a complete uh, losing battle, these culture wars, because I think they're losing these culture wars. Uh, Who won the Nike uh, versus Donald Trump uh, uh, war? Nike made $9 billion. Um, So um, I think that what's playing out here is really very similar to what happened in 15 and 16. 
Yeah, I think it is. It's no different than happened before. Um, but he keeps losing. Rinse and repeat, too. And they keep doing it. Stuart Stevens and Lauren Leader. Thank you both very much. Still ahead. Mike Pence is reportedly preparing to use a never-before-tried legal gambit to get out of talking to the special counsel overseeing Trump investigations. I'll tell you all about it next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Throughout all the investigations into the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill, Trump's cronies have used nearly every excuse in the book to avoid talking to investigators, from claiming executive privilege to pleading the fifth to straight up just ignoring the subpoenas. But today, former Vice President Mike Pence is adding another, perhaps more bizarre excuse to the list. NBC News is reporting that Pence is planning on challenging a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith by invoking the speech or debate clause that protects legislators from outside scrutiny. You might be asking yourself, how does that apply to a former vice president of the United States? Well, apparently, Pence will argue that he was acting in his role as president of the Senate during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. 2021. It remains unclear how that would prevent him from testifying about other conversations at or around the White House before the 6th. But perhaps the larger question is why? This is the same Mike Pence who the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol were chanting about hanging, whose Secret Service rushed off the Senate floor to hide. The same Mike Pence that Trump tweeted didn't have the courage to do what should have been done as the Capitol was being swarmed by a violent, frothing mob. Why wouldn't he want to cooperate? Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and former spokesperson for the House Oversight Committee. I do want to start with you, Paul. Speech and debate clause. I think that makes sense. Speech and debate clause says that members of Congress cannot be questioned in other places about legislative activities. On January 6th, Vice President Pence was the vice president of the United States. He was not a member of Congress. His argument is because the vice president does things like preside over the Senate, vote if there's a tie, he's kind of, sort of, a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. He's also being really disingenuous, Joy, because he fought the January 6th commission by saying that as a member of the executive department, he Mm. shouldn't be compelled to testify by Congress. Now he's invoking separations of power to say, well, I'm a member of Congress, and therefore the executive shouldn't make me testify. Yeah, well, he's also headed to Iowa (laughs) tomorrow. I mean, isn't this, I mean, I've seen folks on air, I might have seen you say this on, uh, on, uh, on, our, on our air, Mike Pence needs to fight this because he's running for president, okay? And he needs to be able to tell the Trump base, no, 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 I was dragged kicking and screaming into testifying against Trump. I love Trump. Yeah, he tried to get me hung, but that's okay. I forgive him. I'm a Christian, right? He's doing this. He's fighting it for political reasons. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, 
This is someone who is so desperate to get the votes of the people who wanted to hang him that he is willing to look the other way and do everything he can to avoid making sure that the people who are actually responsible for sending a dangerous, violent mob after him are able to escape accountability, to avoid justice. And it just says everything you know about Mike Pence. I mean, this is a guy who's vice president of the United States. You would think that your first and foremost priority is to uphold democracy, to defend democracy. It shouldn't take a subpoena right. to get you to talk, talk about what happened. It should, it should take just your own conscience. You should volunteer to tell <laughs> anyone and everyone about what happened, who was behind it, what you heard, and to make sure that they can never hold power again. And he's doing the exact opposite. He's a coward. He also wrote book a book. He appeared in documentaries. We have VO of one we could play if we wanted. We're not going to play the soundbite right now. I think there's VO of it. He uh, has written articles. He has already talked about what happened on January 6th. How can he then shield himself behind anything? Speech of the Blake Clause, executive privilege. He can't shield himself. He's already talked about it. A, a judge is not likely to let him. You don't get to write a book about January 6th and then go on Fox News to hawk it right. and then say, well, I can't talk about it to the grand jury because it's privilege. There's also a question about even if a judge agrees that he's a member of Congress, whether this is legitimate legislative activity. Jack Smith wants to know about his one-on-one -on -one conversations right. with Trump about trying to overturn the democracy. Did Trump admit to um, Pence that he knew he lost, that they lost, but he didn't care? That's not legitimate legislative yeah. activity. And then I think the other piece for him is that the political reasoning doesn't make any sense, right? He isn't going to—he actually isn't going to get the people who wanted to hang him to vote for him. <laughs> That's I mean, they're highly unlikely, right? Once you get to the point where you're willing to hang someone— yeah you're probably never going to vote for them for anything ever again. And yeah. so it's this ridiculous fantasy that Pence has that he can somehow convince any of these people yeah. to support him for political office. It's never going to happen. I, I want to pivot really quick because I, I do want to talk about Dianne Feinstein for just a second. You're from California. Um, it, she seems to be someone pulling back on it, but it looks like she's not going to run. There's going to be a real food fight in California right over the seat. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, for so long in my lifetime, certainly, you know, it was always Feinstein and Boxer. And so anytime that you have an open Senate seat in the state of California, it's going to attract a tremendous amount of attention. And then you have, you know, very serious figures, whether it's obviously Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, Katie Porter. Uh, there are other people Barbara who are, Lee. Barbara Lee. There are other people who are I mean, looking the, at the, it. The, the governor there did say he would appoint a black woman because Kamala Harris was the only black woman in the Senate. I mean, and this is the question, tougher. you know, for a lot of these people, like, will you step down and allow someone to succeed you, or will you actually fill out your term and then just have it be an open seat? I think yeah. that's a question she's going to have to answer, and that will speak to a lot of what kind of legacy she wants to leave behind too. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Politics is weird. <laughs> you have to stick with the law. The that's law is less weird. <laughs> Paul Butler and Kurt Thank you both very much. Up next, House Republicans' revenge and retribution agenda just backfires spectacularly. As a former Twitter employee testifies that social media bias and meddling, they do exist, but just not in the direction that they were hoping for. She joins me next. If you are one of the millions of Americans who uses Twitter, you probably have noticed how it has descended all the way back into a site that fuels misogyny, anti-Semitism, racism, and anti-LGBTQ hate. This is the lasting legacy of Elon Musk, who promised to make Twitter warm and welcoming to all, but turned it into a hellish town square instead, where it is cool to shout the N-word and other disgusting stuff in public. And if you have any doubts, 
where Musk's allegiance lies. Just take a look at who he spent Sunday watching the Super Bowl with. No, that is not Emperor Palpatine, Star Wars fans. It is Rupert Murdoch sitting next to him in the box. Not only is Twitter a gross hellscape, but it has become the premier social media site for the incubation and birth of insurrections and coups. Look no further than January 6th, 2021 in Washington, D.C., or January 8th, 2023 in Brazil for real-life examples. Months after the attack on our capital, one Twitter whistleblower who risked her own safety laid out in disturbing detail how for months the company simply ignored her warnings about Trump's incitement to violence. Her name is Anika Navaroli, and she was the most senior expert on Twitter U.S. safety and policy team at the time of the attack on the Capitol. Since then, she has continued to call out the dangers of an unregulated Twitter. Here's her latest warning. If we are going to talk about social media in the government, we need to talk about Twitter's failure to act before January 6th. I am here to tell you that doing nothing is not an option. If we continue to do nothing, violence is going to happen again. Sadly, under Musk's leadership, Twitter has been eviscerated. He has fired 80 percent of the staff and left fewer than 20 full-time employees tasked with overseeing content moderation. I am joined now by former Twitter employee and whistleblower Anika Collier-Navaroli, practitioner fellow at the Digital Civil Society Lab in partnership with Stanford University. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to be and here. And happy birthday. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about this, because to me, the idea of 20 people handling content moderation explains everything, because Twitter really has become a hellscape. The N-word might be the most used word on there now, as well as Nazi memes and everything. It's all back to where it was during its worst days. Um, talk about how it descended to that and whether it was already there on January 6, 2021. I think that's a great question. And I, I think that, you know, racism and misogyny and all of these things that we're seeing on Twitter and social media are really just algorithmically amplified versions of the society in which we live. And we see this polarization playing out within our digital spaces. And we have for quite some time. And I think this really is an example of the ways in which we have been balancing these sort of ideas of free expression and safety and the ways that we have been allowing hate speech and political speech and violence to fester in a way. And that came to a head in what we saw on January 6th. Right. I mean, talk about how, I mean, as you said, it's a digital sort of representation of elements of society. How does the danger of a tweet, you know, we saw testimony during the January 6th hearings about Donald Trump tweeting, you know, Mike Pence doesn't have the guts. He doesn't have the courage to do what's needed. And you had Sarah Matthews, who was a, an aide in the White House, say that immediately led to violence. But how does that translate? Is Twitter the place where people are planning attacks or is it encouraging people to do ne to take negative behaviors in real life? Is there some sort of connection? I think social media plays every single one of those pieces, right? Social media is the mass communications of our day and age. And I think Throughout history, we have seen the connection and the ties between hate speech and violence offline. This has happened through every emerging technology of mass media that we've seen from radio to the moving picture to um, even 
um, broadcast, right? And we saw this in on social media as well in the very early days with ethnic conflicts and folks like the Rohingya being murdered. We have seen this direct tie between speech and violence. You know, on the one hand, Twitter, you know, I think about the Green Revolution in Iran. It was, it was, you know, Twitter was such a necessity. Black Lives Matter. You know, it ex- helped to, it to explode because you can get information. The right has accused Twitter of primarily spending its time muffling their voices. Uh, there was the PAB, I will just shorten it, uh, moment that you were a part of in the recent hearings in which you pointed out the president during the times in which they were claiming they were being muffled was Donald Trump. And other than the Trump administration, had you ever seen another political entity demand that things be taken off Twitter um, because they were offended by them or because they looked bad? Well, I'll just say, you know, the PAB moment was, in fact, a moment, and I never thought that I would be the one to enter those three words into the congressional (laughs) record for all time. And I think it's really just an example of how little we know about social media. You're asking about other instances, and I think it's really important that we continue to hear from people like me and other individuals who have had the jobs that I've had who can continue to share these stories so that we understand how social media works. But had you ever had a request like that before? I can't get into you, that. Yourself? Okay. Well, and, and the, the other question, I guess, um, um, that, that, that I would then ask is, how, in your view, has Twitter materially changed in terms of the way it operates since Elon Musk took over? I think it's not really about Elon Musk. And I think there's been a lot of reporting about you know, how individuals have been terminated or how trust and safety teams have been gutted. And what I would encourage people to do is read the transcripts from the January 6th committee and ask yourself if that content would have come down before Elon Musk. Yeah, I think I I feel like I know the answer to it. Uh, But uh, you are the expert, Uh, Anika Collier at Navarroli. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Appreciate you. And happy birthday again, Anika Collier at Navarroli. We'll be right back. Thank you. The Florida governor's war on woke strikes right at the heart of American education. His latest target, an advanced placement course in African-American studies, and along with it, the College Board, the nonprofit that administers the states and uh, the SATs, sorry, and AP courses. So this College Board, like, nobody elected them to anything. They're just kind of there, and they're providing service. And so you can either utilize those services or not. And so they've provided the, the, these AP courses for a long time. Uh, but, you know, there, there are probably some other vendors who may, may be able to do that job uh, as good or maybe even a lot better. Across the political spectrum, people were saying that, like, you know, this really is junk. Why don't we just do and teach the things that matter? Why is it always someone has to try to jam their agenda down our throats? Okay, so let's be clear, like... It's the college board that is the educational expert here and and not Ron DeSantis, not even his Department of Education. The vice president for the board's AP program development told The New York Times about his meeting with Florida officials and said, quote, what became clear very quickly is that these were not content experts. I have interacted with many DOEs, he continued, using the shorthand for departments of education. This DOE, he said, This DOE acts as a political apparatus, adding, it's not an effort to improve education. Not an effort to improve education. Well, no surprise there. 
This is a state whose leaders said African-American studies lacks educational value. What is becoming increasingly clear is that DeSantis's crusade to whitewash black history will be a major component of his presidential campaign when he finally announces, that is. Meaning, this isn't just about Florida, folks. The attempt to remake American history in the image of a wannabe Victor Orban could be the fate of education throughout this country. They are trying to ban intersectionality, but they don't even know what it means. They want knowledge to be based on white Americans' feelings, not on facts. They want teachers to hide their books and cower in fear. Well, it is not going to be easy because finally, finally, more people in Florida are fighting back. Students, educators, elected officials, civil rights leaders, and clergy will march tomorrow in Tallahassee. Reverend Al Sharpton and the National Action Network will lead a contingent to the old state capitol to protest the state's attempt to banish black history from public schools. It's also why we will be there tomorrow to bring you a special edition of The Readout, live from Tallahassee, the heart of the culture war over education, but also ground zero in the fight over LGBTQ rights, diversity efforts, mask mandates, voting rights, health care, theme parks, even drag shows. We are putting a special spotlight on all of it from, the, from ground zero in Florida. You will not want to miss it. So do join us tomorrow where people have plenty to say, plenty about the war on knowledge. Come on, Florida. And that is tonight's readout. You can do better, Florida. I know you can. I believe it. You can do it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs> 